We are emerging from the torpor of darkest winter and it's time to hit the road. Confex editors have spent the last few weeks on planes, trains and automobiles, bucket lists in hand, and the year has got off to a dynamic start. In this episode of Confex Corner, we'll convene in London to hear about who's been where and catch a new exhibition of photographer Russell Young's dreamy work before heading to Athens to a mind-expanding supper club. We'll meet an expert to discuss the social history of the road trip movie and hear about one writer's journey to Mongolia, where he found himself the owner of an ever-expanding cashmere collection. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, and this is Confet Corner. Generally, the premise of the Supper Club resonates very well with our idea of a hub, where locals and then hotel guests and travellers can mingle and make connections. Metaphorically, one can travel to lose oneself or the opposite to find oneself. And if you think of all those themes, there are kind of journeys of self-discovery or the coming of age, you know, type of narrative. I am a cashmere aficionado. My extensive portfolio encompasses socks, trousers, jackets and hats. If I could only get my feet into some cashmere shoes, I would be able to dress head to toe in the stuff. Welcome to Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London. For this month's episode, I'm joined here in the studio by Gillian Tobias and by Confect's deputy editor, Chiara Rumella. Hello to you both. Hi, Sophie. Hi, good to see you, Chiara. It's such a joy to be around this table with you, <laughs> particularly after we've all been on such amazing travels. It feels like... It's a much-needed debrief. It is very nice to have you here. And as regular listeners will know, we like to start by talking about what we've seen on our travels. Uh, You've been far and wide, so let's start with you, Chiara. Well, I've come in just from Switzerland, and I was in Italy before that, but I think the most remarkable journey I've made in the last month or so has been to India. It was my first time there, and it was just such an incredible and overwhelming experience and one that I'm very keen to repeat many, many times to come. And it was a combination of time spent in the cities, in the middle of traffic and in a noise and the incredible kind of cacophony of everything. And then some time spent on the Himalayas in a yoga retreat, which was the exact opposite of all of the above. And I was very lucky to find this place upon much, much research because we're journalists after all. So even when it comes to our holidays, we take things seriously. And I researched and researched for just the right place. And I found this yoga retreat that's called Anand Lok across the Ganga. As the name says, it is just on the banks of the Ganges and it's a really a magical place. And it is constructed as a series of cabins, all green and red, which kind of disappear into the foliage and it can host up to 30 guests. But I was so lucky that because it was quite low season, I was there by myself. <laughs> so I really had a one-on-one experience with my yoga teacher for my Ayurvedic treatments. Breakfast, lunch and dinner was served in this fantastic restaurant with a view out to the Ganges flowing. And if you kept the windows open, you could hear the Ganges flowing underneath. They took me to lots of ashrams, lots of places around this very beautiful village called Sirazu, just up the valley from Rishikesh. Far away enough from Rishikesh that you don't get necessarily just all the 
performative aspect of spirituality because obviously there is a lot of that in that area of India as well. Just quiet, time in nature, time in a yoga hall, time eating exclusively vegetarian food, which again was something that surprised me a lot because I'm not a vegetarian myself normally. But when in India, it's so easy to be vegetarian and it is so delicious and so reinvigorating. And it was such a discovery. My best discovery from the place though, aside from the yoga and the Ayurvedic treatments and the meditation and all the beautiful things that that does to your body, is Tulsi tea. Now this really is the cure. It's basically the Indian version of basil, which they make this amazing aromatic tea out of. And there was a big flask of it, always hot in the restaurant that I could go and fill my cup from at all times of day and night. And I think I must have drank about five or six litres of it. And so did you bring any back for the confect team? I do have some masala. <laughs> I do have some masala chai made with Tulsi at home. So... On the next recording, we'll do a little tasting. How about you, Sophie? What have you seen on your travels? Well, I've just been in Paris, actually, with Gillian. We crossed paths. But I went to the most amazing morning course. I went back to school. And it's an école, which is run by the jewellery house Van Clef and Arpels. They're right behind the Place Vendôme. And they're going to open another kind of much more ambitious one on Grand Boulevards. But this was like this lovely little classroom and it was a seminar on the history of pearls and also the science of pearls, how they are made, how they evolve, how they became cultured in the 20th century. I had my pen out. I just scribbled away for four hours and I came out feeling so invigorated. I'm always fascinated by the beauty of pearls and I love the metaphor of the grit in the oyster that makes the pearl that I often apply to places in life and things in life because things that are too perfect don't necessarily appeal to me. I like whether it's the rawness of cities that you get the best, most beautiful experiences. So pearls to me are very symbolic in terms of how I also like to kind of experience life. And they're so central to the history of adornment and art. This, of course, you know, you were kind of delving into so many beautiful things and collections and you had to look at pearls under microscopes and hold them in your hand and look at different ones from Akoya but then Mississippi pearls in the US and it was just mind-blowing actually around the table there were kind of antique dealers and students felt like a really interesting gathering of people but they were dispelling quite a few myths about pearls and the ah. grit is actually one of them so I'm going to have don't to don't do that to um, me sorry about so that I <laughs> know it is something to do with the kind of external a pearl doesn't come from grit I'm afraid I'm just going to have to break that to you pearls are so metaphorical in our minds and they're so they're symbolic of purity and all these different things so actually you have to unlearn quite a few things when you start what I came away with just the feeling of actually how lovely it is to learn we are lucky enough to learn things all the time in journalism but this felt very academic and really really nourishing so I feel very lucky to have come back from Paris with that under my hat and I'll tell you some more off mic about pearls because <laughs> I've got four hours of chat <laughs> Gillian what have you been doing? Well we were working very 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 hard in Paris but the beauty of staying in different hotels around the city is you get to know different parts of the city and so when I wasn't working, I would head out and just turn right and left and see what I'd discover. And this time, as I was walking towards the Bourse de Commerce on a little side street, I passed a shop that I first thought was a shop. Then I thought it was a gallery because it was full of the most beautiful photographs. 
And then I looked closer and there were candles in the windows and beautiful bottles. And then I went inside and there's this gorgeous fragrance. And it's this incredible brand called Lola James Harper. It's actually been going on for a while, creating fragrances and experiences for hotels and doing various pop-ups. But this is the first permanent shop. The founder, who's Lebanese, Rami Mekdashi, he is a musician. He's a writer. He's a great traveler. He is a photographer. And he really bottles memories, experiences, and creates these whimsical stories that are so captivating. And they're almost like mini philosophies to life. And really, to give you an example of this, I have to read you some of the names of the perfumes and the descriptions. So... Here we have one called the Bon Berea in Barcelona, and it's amber essence, but it's all about the joy of being in a candy store on their travels in Barcelona, Spain. Another one I love is the vinyl store on Rue des Dames, which is papyrus and poplar wood, which is very much that smell when you open covers of records and you smell the paper and the, the wooden shelves. There's another one I love, which is white coffee on Teta's balcony, which is that lovely white coffee come tea and that they often host in Lebanon, which is so much about conversations and generations. But what I really, really loved about this is it's so much about memory and sharing of memory. And I suppose the entrepreneurial joy of being able to do something like this and cross-pollinating all your creative interests. I really highly recommend people dip into this shop and just choose the names and the fragrances that tickle their fancy and then open up the fragrance to a world of discovery. This really reminds me of a place in Reykjavik, actually, which I have been fortunate enough to visit on a couple of occasions. It's a place called Fischersund in Reykjavik city centre, and it's run by the family of Jonsi, the singer of Sigur Ros, the band. Mm. And they are a perfume shop which is very much inspired by different environments, all to do with Iceland in one way or another. But interestingly, downstairs, they always have an exhibition, a temporary exhibition, which is a a sensory smell exhibition. And when I visited once, they had a literary-themed one. So they would pick out text from famous books and create a scent that encapsulated those little excerpts. And I think it's very interesting to think of smell, sense, in this synesthetic type of way, where words can inspire a vision and everything is connected. And I think it's wonderful, as you say, when these things cross-pollinate each other. We start this month with the glistening portraits of the rich and famous that currently line London's Maddox Street Gallery. Dreamland is a new exhibition by the British artist Russell Young that explores a lifelong obsession with the dark underbelly of celebrity culture. Portraits of legendary musical icons such as Jimi Hendrix and David Bowie are found next to classic movie stars such as Bridget Bardot and Marilyn Monroe. And with collectors like Barack Obama, Elon Musk and the Kardashians, they hang in rather famous houses too. So what makes Young's work so endlessly fascinating? To find out more, Confex Paige Reynolds took a tour. The old adage of all that glitters is not gold is a near-perfect analogy for the diamond dust celebrity portraits that make up Russell Young's Dreamland exhibition. Showing me around today is the Maddox Gallery's artistic director, Maeve Doyle. She starts by explaining the visceral impact of the shimmering canvases that tower over us. Unless you see Russell Young's work in person, you'd never 
notice just how incredibly beautiful they are. A JPEG would never cover it. There's something about the diamond dust on the surface of the canvas and the way light hits it that brings them into a magical realm. Russell himself says that fairies come at night, or Tinkerbell specifically, and spreads fairy dust on them. And I guess that's a joke, but it also... It's also kind of a metaphor for the fact that they do look otherworldly and they take you into another dimension. The word iconic's used a lot when you look at the images. Something like Marilyn Chanel. It's a beautiful photograph. It was used in Time magazine. If you go to the V&A, it's up in her timeline at the Chanel show. But when you see it in Russell Young, Diamond Dust, it looks like something from another world. Amongst the celebrities staring out from the large glittering canvases are Jimi Hendrix, Bridget Bardot and Marilyn Monroe, figures as iconic as they were misunderstood. Standing in front of Young's work, Marilyn crying, Maeve tells us more about this paradox. Marilyn, clearly a sex symbol of the 50s, a magnificent actress, very talented actress, but she was known through the media as a sex object, sex symbol. This was a conflict for her because she wanted to be taken seriously. We also know as beautiful and as talented as she was, she had a troubled past. And that's the other side of fame and shame. There was mental illness in her past. None of her relationships worked out. And in this particular piece, Marilyn crying, she could never look more beautiful, but she was coming out of the court where she was divorcing Joe DiMaggio. So the pathos of the beauty is right there in front of you. I think if you look at someone like Bridget Bardot, she ushered in the 60s, was sort of a symbol of a sex kitten. Her husband, Roger Vadim, directed her in When God Created Woman. Fashion still kind of makes note of how she influenced it with the kind of tousled hair and ballet slippers and leopard print. But she was smart enough to leave acting and Hollywood at the age of 39 and she started a foundation for animals which is still called the Bridget Bardot Foundation where she rescues and cares for animals. Funny how people walk away from something we all aspire to. While it's perhaps obvious why figures such as Monroe or Bardot would spark fascination for the budding fine artist and photographer, Young's path to these diamond-dusted portraits that stand in front of us is an intriguing one. Russell started as a rock photographer, so he would always be around people like George Michael. He did the cover of Faith, and George Michael's the reason he ended up in the States. He was at George's wedding. So working for years as a rock photographer, he really understood the nature of celebrity. And I think when digital photography came in, he tells this story about going up to a mountain and meditating for three days and coming down as an artist. And I believe it was 2004 when he released his first series, which was called Pig Portraits. And it was arrest photos of celebrities like Frank Sinatra or Sid Vicious or Michael Madsen, Juliette Lewis, another great series. So Russell, his own personal history is he was adopted. And the way he tells the story, his father took him to the movies in the north of England and he started to create this mythologized story for himself of what his life could be because he had nothing to lose. There was no family history he needed to shed and he went right into an obsession with celebrity which brought him to California away from the darkness of northern England. So the autobiography in this is personal to Russell. The closer we get to the dazzling canvases, the more questions I have for Maeve about Russell Young's artistic process. When we go to do the printing at Luther's studio, Luther Davis's studio, there'll be eight people carrying all sides of this. So they go through the screen print once, 
twice if there's two different colors. And then the process of putting diamond dust on takes a, a lot of people in masks to make sure that they're protected. And uh, it's until you see the process, you don't realize how intricate it is. So the impressions are all unique because nothing ever comes out the same way twice. And it's the same dust or the same technique that Andy Warhol used, is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I think there's a story Russell tells about he and Luther discussing what they were going to do next. And Luther came out with this bag of diamond dust and said, why don't we work with this? And it kind of took off from there. Although today, aesthetic beauty is likely to be the main take-home for Dreamland exhibition goers, Young has a more provocative past. Maeve tells me about the first time Young's work piqued her interest. Yeah, I do remember the first time I'd opened my gallery, Doyle de Vere and Ledbury Road, and around the corner there was a gallery called Bank Robber. And they had a picture of Kate and Pete in Diamond Dust, two portraits, styled as the notorious Myra Henley and Ian Brady. And I was blown away. It's a very controversial piece. I don't know if it could be shown now, and this was maybe 15 years ago, and I was just, couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I saw The Magnificent Seven, which of course is Yul Brenner, and from the movie and the horses coming towards me. And then I met Russell, and I just was completely fascinated with the way he was mining celebrity culture. And you talk about the picture of Kate and Pete the way we see things, I could see them as Kate and Pete because I was from Canada at the time. Other people didn't see Kate and Pete at all. And it, it created such a lot of controversy. And again, I lost perspective that it was Kate and Pete because that's not what anyone was seeing. And on that scandalous note, it was time to head down to the exhibition's lower level where British model Kate Moss was making another appearance in a trio of colours. Maeve takes me through the careful selection process. There's a specific man in Italy who has pigment that you can't get anywhere else, and Russell makes trips down to this place in Italy to buy pigment. Each of the colors he mixes for the specific subject has to do with their biography. So Kate was born in Croydon, and he names the colors after streets in Croydon. Oh, wow, so he buys the pigments and then creates his own colors. Yeah for each of the people. So let's say it was Marilyn and she was living in Hollywood, there'd be Vicente Boulevard Blue, or you get the idea. Melrose Pink. Wow, so he's a very intentional person then. And he certainly immerses himself in it, and you're right, he is a very intentional person. The back of the canvases will have drawings and maybe phrases from, lyrics from songs on them, so the expression comes out everywhere. Back on the ground floor, a canvas placed next to the window draws me in. I love the Bowie. I didn't realise there was yeah. a Bowie. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, the show at the V&A about Bowie had a piece that said he knew there was mental illness in his family, and I think a little bit about Kusama when I tell this story about the way she handles her neuroses, her compulsive neuroses, is through making dots and working all the time and he had a similar quote where he said he knew there was mental illness in his family and he knew that medication wasn't the cure for it so he found different personas and he threw himself into work and through that you see another world he created that he could live in and he could express himself in and he could manage what he was worried about genetically and he did it for so many of us I mean who hasn't been carried through moments in time by something Bowie did from Bowie to Bardot, Dreamland is a nuanced portrait of what it really means to be famous and an impressive example of what the new Maddox Gallery can do. 
For Comfact in London, I'm Paige Reynolds. Next, we're off to Greece, where a string of supper clubs have been taking place at the Mona Hotel in Athens, bringing guests together with locals to break bread during meals prepared by a roster of culinary talent from across Europe. Confex Hester Underhill pulled up a chair at the most recent dinner, sitting down with creative director Ephithia Stefanidi and chef Frederica Vigano to hear more about the project. The last few years have seen a spate of glamorous guest houses opening in downtown Athens. One of the newest and buzziest is Mona, a 20-room hotel housed in an eight-storey former textiles factory that began welcoming guests last summer. Mona is the latest opening from House of Sheila, a group owned by New York-based entrepreneur Cheyenne Tebby, which is made up of a trio of guest houses and hospitality venues in both Brooklyn and Athens. Antebi worked with creative director Eftahia Stefanidi to come up with the concept for Mona, and the result is way more than just a hotel. It encompasses a cafe, lounge and bar, and a speakeasy basement venue, as well as a rooftop terrace. Across all of these spaces, events aiming to connect guests with locals are organised through its own members club, Mon Amour. The hotel has also thrown a series of supper clubs, bringing international talent to the city the latest of which came to a close in early November with a dinner prepared by acclaimed young Italian chef Federico Vigano. I went down to the hotel to speak with Eftahir about the project and hear what's on the menu for tonight. Generally, the premise of the supper club resonates very well with our idea of a hub where locals and then hotel guests and travellers can mingle and make connections. So the goal is to bring people together and present an inspiring programme alongside our art events. So food is a very big and serious part of our curation and also to provide this ground for experimentation. The series thus far has included the likes of Turkish chef Osman Serdaoğlu, founder of esteemed Izmir restaurant Terwa Ola, and Andreas Nikalokopoulos from the Rooster Hotel's farm-to-table restaurant on the Greek island of Antiparos. I catch up with tonight's chef as he preps for the second night of his sold-out supper club run at the hotel. Hi, I'm Federico Vigano. come from Italy. And uh, I've been inviting here from uh, FTA, which is a common friend. I'm very happy to be here, show my cooking, and uh, hope it's going good tonight. And you're usually based in Zurich, is that right? Now I'm between Zurich, Geneva and Paris. I'm uh, flying... Uh, every second week to a different city. So I found some uh, few days off, let's say, to come here and uh, have fun. (laughs) And what's on the menu tonight? The menu actually is the same as yesterday. It's uh, a testing menu. We have ingredients that uh, I used to uh, put on my previous menu in the restaurant where I worked before. And then uh, some other ingredients have been replaced with Greek and uh, local uh, local produce. We have, uh, for example, starter. We have uh, uh, round zucchini and uh, anticucho, or uh, an anchovy small uh, toast bruschetta. And then uh, the first starter it's uh, an artichokes, filled with uh, egg yolk cream, and uh, the famous uh, stamnagathi from Crete. So what's a stamnagathi? It's uh, a bitter green. 
it's a very traditional herbs uh, that actually grow up in, uh, in Crete. I wanted to use uh, Cima di Rapa, that was my original recipe, as it was not possible to find or actually it was not good enough here. We replaced it with uh, Stamnagathe also to celebrate and uh, to pay respect to Athens and Greece. The food is pretty easy, a little bit my style. I try to take out ingredients from the plate and from the recipe instead of putting more. I try to give complexity on the recipe through my travels, uh, the technique I learn. And if you see in uh, every dish, there are at least two or three countries or a style of cuisine that come up. And so how familiar were you with Greek cuisine? Actually, apart from uh, feta salad and uh, uh, souvlaki, I have to tell you, I ate a lot of souvlaki in the last three days. <laughs> Not really, I always enjoy it, but I come from Italy. We share the most of the Mediterranean ingredients. So obviously it's not new for me. We share also a lot of techniques and style. So it's not completely far from my background and my knowledge. And so how would you describe the vibe last night at the supper club? I really love the vibes. First, of the hotel. I love what FDA is doing. It's uh, exactly my style. That's one of the reasons why I choose to participate to, to this event. The restaurant begins to slowly fill with diners, taking their places at a series of candlelit communal tables and sipping on glasses of Greek natural wines hand-selected to match Vigano's menu. Chatter begins softly, but even by the end of the first course there's a lively thrum that's unmistakable in its giddy enjoyment. The Greeks are known for their hospitality and tonight is an exemplary show that brings together Athenians with visitors from far and wide. There's little wonder why they continue to sell out so quickly. For Confect in Athens, I'm Hester Underhill. A report there by Confect's Hester Underhill in Athens. Gillian, are you a fan of supper clubs? <laughs> I'd quite like to go to one. I think we should do a Confect Corner Supper Club. I suppose more it's me when I host a dinner party. I kind of like to bring together people who don't know each other. So it's my own little supper club. People that I feel that there's going to be common denominators, but where they don't live in the same city or they don't work in the same area. And a lot of mingling around the table. So people change places during different courses. So I guess it's my own little supper club. But what I really like is introducing people who don't know each other, but they're all very special to me. And then I quite like what happens after that. How about you, Sophie? I can see how this would be a good way of meeting like-minded people in a new city. Yes, I love the idea of a kind of spontaneous gathering of people. And I think sometimes you find yourself in very odd and kind of quirky locations, which can be nice, with chefs who might not have a restaurant. But just that one moment, it's like a party, really. I also just like a dinner party where there is that sense of whomever you're next to could change your life and change your mind. <laughs> and it's the same principle. What about you, Kiara? I agree with Julian that there is a certain commonality between supper clubs and dinner parties. And I feel like in countries like Italy, for example, where people do go out to dinner, there is a bit of a predisposition to eating at home and there is such a cultural, I guess, habit of having people round that I think people are just more used to not eating necessarily in a dining room, but in more of a domestic space. But specifically, I think in Italy, the idea of supper clubs works really well because there is such a wealth of incredible 
buildings that many people don't usually get to experience. And Gillian's nodding very, very approvingly because I think she's been to the Biennale in Venezia enough times to know that the best things happen in these palazzos that normally are closed off to the public and then you get invited for dinner one night and this whole world unfolds. We were so lucky to go to a supper club by We Are Owner, who are a company normally based in Paris, but they really pop up everywhere there is a relevant art fair or big cultural event and they tend to run supper clubs in occasion of those. And we went to the Venice one and it was astonishing. It was this mirrored dining room, former Casanova residence that you would just walk past on your way to the Vaporetto and then suddenly the lock is unlocked, you know, the doors are opened and you get a glimpse into these incredible spaces. And then, of course, you do chance upon people, some that you might know already. You know, we were lucky enough to be sat next to somebody that we already knew because kind of these types of occasions do bring together like-minded people. But some people that end up staying in your life just because you sat down with them inside Casanova's house in Venice one night. But I love the idea that food isn't always cooked by a professional chef and sometimes the hosts of supper clubs are cooks rather than chefs. And they're just presenting a meal that one time because the stamina you have to have to really have your own restaurant is completely different to the ingredients you need for a good supper club. Now, the start of the new year is a time for plotting, planning and dreaming of travel itineraries. And a theme that we return to over and over again is the eternal allure of the road trip. This enduring appeal has been immortalised over the decades on film, from the rolling hills of Tuscany to the French Riviera, where people and the open road play the leading roles in the big screen. And this has become, of course, a film genre, dubbed road movie, where a road trip often alters the characters' perspectives on life. Convex Isabella Jewell spoke to Laura Rascarolli, who's a professor of film and screen media at University College Cork in Ireland. She's the author of Crossing New Europe, Postmodern Travel and the European Road Movie. Isabella started by asking her to define the genre. When we talk of road movies, our thought is likely to go to the endless highways and roads that cross the boundless landscapes of the United States and possibly to the 1960s. We are likely to think about films like Dennis Hopper's Easy Rider, Arthur Peng's Bonnie and Clyde. That's Bonnie, Faye Dunaway. That's Clyde, Warren Beatty. Harley Davidson's and convertibles, the desire to escape, you know, the freedom from constraints, the possibility of reinventing swung life. And in this type of road movie, the main theme was the countercultural dream, you know, of leaving behind domesticity, family, work, society, and setting off on a big open-ended, although often fatal, journey and adventure. But there is a whole other series, a, a quite different type of road trip film. And I refer to all those films that centre around a journey which can be undertaken by any type of character and for a very diverse range of reasons. And I'm thinking about, you know, anything from work to emigration, from commuting to tourism. And the possibilities are endless in this case. The themes are endless, depend on the type of character who is on the road, on the type of journey that is undertaken. One can think, for instance, of the many themes that have been denouncing the conditions of migrants made over the past 
20, 25 years in Europe, early 2000s in this war by Michael Winterbottom, which followed two young Afghan refugees trip from Pakistan to London. Metaphorically, one can travel to lose oneself or at the opposite to find oneself. And if you think of all those things that are kind of journeys of self-discovery or the coming of age, you know, type of narrative. So we started this conversation talking about very American origins of this genre. Can you tell me a little bit more about the European take on this genre and their relationship to American films of the same style? The differences between American and European films travel films are all at once cultural and aesthetic. I mean, we mentioned the boundless horizons of the United States, the endless straight roads, even the myth of the coast to coast journey. That is not something that happens in Europe. You have a mosaic of cultures, nations, landscapes and languages. So this means that in European films, the emphasis is placed on crossing borders, on international encounters. It's placed on the transformation of landscapes, of cost Customs. Another interesting difference is that European travelers much more frequently than American ones, because of the different type of landscape and society, they often use public transport, such as trains or buses. They even go on foot, you know, which is not something that you often see in American films. Correspondingly, they are usually ordinary citizens rather than rebels, you know, seeking freedom or criminals on the run, you know, so they mostly move for practical reasons. And in all cases, anyway, all films, whether European or American or even from other nations, they retain a kind of a constant core. The theme of travel is often a way of going to investigate, you know, a society and a reason to make a character study as well. Travel becomes a kind of an opportunity for exploration and discovery, the observation of society, culture, identity. And if you want, that's precisely the strengthening of the cinema of travel compared to travel literature. It's the ability of the camera to show us the beauty of the places of the landscapes, you know. I mean, if you think about there's even that sort of typical road movie shot, you know, where you place the camera inside the car and you look at the landscape through the windscreen of a moving vehicle, often without dialogue, you know, and accompanied by an exhilarating soundtrack, you know, so there is this sort of kinetic pleasure, which is specifically cinematic. And that is something that you can find in many different cultures. But as I mentioned, European films have their own kind of tradition. just talk about the role of the car in the road movie. How important is it? It's huge. I mean, the fact that many film historians consider the road movie as it emerged in the States to be a new Western. So with uh, the car replacing the horse, you know, so the character is the new cowboy, if you wish, and uh, the road is the frontier. It does have that sense of freedom, of exploration, of mobility, the conquest of the frontier. But the car also can be a compact space where you play 
these two characters and you set them on the road and in the confined space, you know, relationship, you know, has to develop. Hai avuto paura? No, no. Qui da bene lei. Oh, ma che sei matto, mi dai ancora del lei? E dammi del tuo, no? Ormai ci conosciamo. Va bene. Many of us would think it's a very male-dominated genre that focuses on male stories and experiences. Is that true? I mean, I mentioned earlier about right the new Western, kind of a reinvention, modernization of the Western. And if you think about the Western as a very masculine genre, you know, you can see how it translated again you know, into a sort of genre in which you know man is usually riding the motorcycle or behind the wheel, and the woman appeared mostly as a kind of a side character, as a hitchhiker in difficulty, maybe a, a kind of a waitress in cafes, in roadside diners, or even the maternal, you know, one, or sometimes as traveling companion. Do you mind if I drive? I'm afraid I'll fall asleep otherwise. All right, fine, if you wish. In order to find a woman behind the wheel, an all-female journey in American cinema, you have to wait till the early 1990s with Thelma and Louise by Ridley Scott. Mm -hmm. So that's quite late, right, for somebody to place two women behind the wheel. And if you remember the film, the two protagonists end up quite badly and pay with their lives. It seems to reconfirm that sort of male-centric view of the genre. But if you look at Europe then, you can find quite early examples of female independence in European cinema and European classics. You know, I'm thinking of films like Voyage to Italy by Roberto Rossellini from 1954, Wild Strawberries by Ingmar Bergman from 1957. Women from lower classes generally, again, were passengers. If alone, they were exposed to the dangers of the road. And in a way, we were saying how road movies reflect society. A report there by Isabella Jewell. You're listening to Confect Corner. It's time now for this month's final thought, where a recent trip to Mongolia cemented the country's reputation as the global home of all things soft, fluffy and wearable. Here's writer Alexis Self with his take on Mongolian Kashmir. There were two things that I knew about Mongolia before I went there. That it is the birthplace of Genghis Khan, the great warrior king, and that it is far away, at least from London. These two morsels of information might be stereotypes or clichés, but that doesn't mean they're not true or that they can't be portals to a greater understanding. I bought a few books and learned that Genghis Khan, known as Chinggis in Mongolia, ruled over the largest contiguous land empire the world has ever seen, was raised as an orphan in a lowly nomadic family. People, mostly my colleagues, would laugh at my pre-reporting research, suggesting that someone who died 800 years ago might not be that relevant to a 21st century nation. Their recommendation for a more pertinent subject was Kashmir. They had a point. About 40% of the world's Kashmir comes from Mongolian goats. They also knew their audience. I am a Kashmir aficionado. My extensive portfolio encompasses socks, trousers, jackets and hats. 
If I could only get my feet into some cashmere shoes, I would be able to dress head to toe in the stuff. I also spend an unhealthy amount of time thinking about the clothes moths that threaten to ravage my cash. For most of the year, my collection remains sequestered in hard-to-reach parts of the wardrobe in airtight bags. I sometimes lament that my cashmere garments, bought largely for their utility, keeping me warm, have become heirlooms to be stashed away and gazed at once a year, furtively, to check that they're still there. Or perhaps I'm being too precious. The photos that I could find of Mongolian Kashmir herders revealed hardy families living in inhospitable climes. Did these people suffer emotional paroxysms at the sight of a moth? Herder families, which make up nearly a third of all Mongolian households, derive half of their income from Kashmir, and the wool provides a living for almost a third of the country's population. Mongolia is cold. In winter, temperatures plunge to minus 40 degrees Celsius, which is why its goats must grow extra thick coats. Though their wool has been worn and traded by nomadic herders for thousands of years, it is only in the 20th century, when a country's gross domestic product has become a marker of its essential health, that Mongolian cashmere can be said to have become a distinctly homespun industry. At its apex is Gobi, Mongolia's most famous cashmere brand and the country's fifth largest private employer. Its chief growth and strategic officer, Amasaikan Batasaikan, son of the CEO, trumpets corporate buzzwords such as sustainability and craft, while selling Gobi's office as just another 21st century workplace. But the factory tells a different story. Here, 1,700 people sought clean, dye and knit wool in giant rooms flanked by 1980s-era adverts featuring slick-haired men in cashmere overcoats. The effect of all this studious activity in the service of fine knitwear is stirring, if you're into that kind of thing. Here is a Valhalla, where cashmere comes to dye. Most of Mongolia's cherished wool is sold as raw fabric to be marked with foreign chalk in Milan, Edinburgh or New York. Gobi is one of the country's few manufacturers that only exports ready-made garments. It has a number of shops around Ulaanbaatar selling a moth's banquet of cashmere products at discounted prices. In the one next to the factory, I piled a basket high with scarves, socks, blankets and bonnets. Despite an attempt to update their range with more modern designs, Gobi has done well to stick to the basics, focusing on the quality of the fabric more than gratuitous design quirks. The 25-year-old Batasaikan insists that all of the cashmere comes from herders rather than farmers, meaning that the goats are better treated, giving their proportionate value to their owners. Back in London, 9,000 kilometres from the steppe, in the depths of winter, I don my navy blue Gobi cardigan and head out into the pitilessness of my weekly commute. That was the writer Alexis Self. Kiara, what's the furthest you've travelled for cashmere or a particular item of clothing? This is a bit of a cheat of an answer because I didn't travel myself and it's not cashmere, but I've recently acquired via my father 
a wonderful Nepalese jumper that he genuinely bought on the streets of Kathmandu in the late 70s when he travelled there hiking in the mountains. And it is itchy. <laughs> it is not cashmere. It is probably yak wool. It features this geometric pattern and it is purple and dark blue and it is so vibrant and amazing and it fits me miraculously. But I always make a point of buying an item of clothing when I'm traveling, if I have time, because I think it's wonderful when you put something on and it reminds you of the trip that you've been on. And also it makes you feel like it is not going to be replicable by people around you. And frequently those are the items that people ask me about and they'll be like, oh, this, I just picked it up in Tokyo, no big deal. <laughs> But yes, I would say that it is always worth investing and making room in the suitcase because you'll never regret bringing back home something from a trip. What about you, Gillian? Have you ever brought something back from a journey or what kind of items you cherish the most? Well, strangely, I adore when I travel looking at beautiful things, but I've never been a big shopper. I take photographs, I observe, I look, but then I always have regret because I'm haunted by something I saw and I never bought. And one particular when I was in Nepal and it was at the end of a five-day trek and I was exhausted, but walking back to our little hotel, I see on the pavement these most stunning, stunning silver belts. They were like chainmail, but they had big red raw stones in them. But you can just imagine that wearing them with jeans or wearing with the black dress. And I loved it so much. But again, I had this, oh, do I want to carry it back? And do I want to haggle? Do I want to barter? So tired. No, didn't. Flew to Kathmandu, regretted it, regretted it, regretted it on the plane back to London, and then regretted it even more when one day I went to Liberty's and I walked through the door and there's a beautiful display case under a spotlight. Is that very same silver raw belt with chunky red rocks displayed so beautifully for hundreds of pounds? You'd think I'd learn my lesson. I still look at things, um, ah, uh, don't, then have regret. I compensate for you because I fully have practically had to enlist my own donkey to carry <laughs> me around the souks of wherever I've been because I do really invest. Oh, yes. And especially in also textiles and woolens. I've got some most amazing things. I've got an alpaca jumper from the Andes, which is amazing. And it has that sense. You can feel the kind of oils of the wool, of the animal, in your fingertips, which is amazing. I've got amazing rugs from Aleppo and Syria, which I really cherish. And they're so difficult to preserve because, you know, you have to move and you have to safeguard them. <laughs> But I think in terms of cashmere, I really love vintage cashmere and Scottish cashmere. And so I think the Scottish cashmere is so fine and so beautiful. If you find your piece, you really have to cherish it like a member of the family. And I sometimes keep my cashmere in the freezer which drives everyone in my family mad. But sometimes it has to be done. Well, I'm going to Mexico in a week's time, Mexico City, and I think I'm going to take a leaf out of both your books and I'm really going to try and come away with something very special and for the next Confect Corner I might do a, a show and tell and share with you what I have discovered and bought with me this time. Presents welcome too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Julian Tobias and to Chiara Romella for joining me here in the London studio. Marcella Palek will be back for next month's episode. Confect Corner is produced and edited by Carlotta Ribello and Christy O'Grady. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. 